This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what we've already heard today and the the joy of singing to you and um, hearing each other's voices, remembering that you alone are the uh, proper object of our heart's adoration and praise. We pray now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and give us that kind of reverence and humility to learn from Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. Amen. Well, please do keep uh, your Bible or your phone open there at Exodus chapter 20. We'll be spending uh, a bit of our our sermon time there today. And if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors, and I'd love to chat afterwards by the front door. How should you relate to royalty? Some years ago, I was actually asking this question for real. I was working as a headhunter in the west end of London, and our firm had been retained by the Prince of Wales Charities to find a chief executive for a charity that was, was known to be the one that he really cared about the most. He loved it. And we went through a very careful process. We searched. We found good candidates. We brought up a short list that we interviewed. They met a panel which included a, a Scottish earl who lived in a castle. But the appointment wasn't, couldn't be made without a final interview with the prince himself, And he hadn't been directly involved until that point. So our candidate needed to go to a palace and talk to a prince one-to-one. But how on earth do you do that? It wasn't something we normally did. What's the correct way to address royalty? Are you supposed to bow? How low? Uh, Do you say your highness or your royal highness? How many times? Can you turn your back on them or not? I mean, it's, it's, it's a minefield. And it was really important for our candidate to relate appropriately to the prince or he could mess up the process. So we got a very clear briefing from the prince's staff and everything went really well. Now, the Prince of Wales is now the King of England. But he is just a man. And in his PJs, he looks the same as you and me. In fact, he looks exactly like some of you. What about the king of kings, the living God, the very definition of majesty? How should we relate to him? Now, this was something that God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, had to learn. They didn't just know it. They'd lived in the country of Egypt for generations. And when it came to religion, that meant they weren't neutral. They weren't a kind of blank slate. Egypt was an an environment with a very complex, entrenched religious system that's called idolatry. And then the Israelites were rescued in the Exodus and brought out and on their way to a promised land in a place called Canaan. And guess what? The Canaanites had a complex, entrenched system of religion called idolatry as well. Everybody did. Everybody except the Israelites. They were to have no other gods before the Lord. That's the first commandment in verse 3 there. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. That was the foundational instruction that God gave them, the basis upon which to build the rest of life. And this name, I am the Lord your God, if you see in your Bible it's printed in small capital letters, that name behind that is is a very sacred Hebrew word that can be pronounced something like this, Yahweh, Yahweh in the original language. And this special name had been given by God 
to Moses, his personal name, to communicate something very, very important about himself. It means, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. By definition, that means he's the only God. He is. Now, if he's, just, if he's the only God, then all the other gods are the ones who is not. He is self-defining, self-existing. He doesn't need to define himself as the God of the sun or the God of the moon or the God of the river or the God of fertility or the God of crops. He made it all. He simply is, and there is no other. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first commandment, and it lays the foundations for the others. Now, this was absolutely unique in the ancient world. This is new to them. So how are they going to relate to this God? And the Ten Commandments are giving us the answer. Core principles for how to live as free people. There are sometimes, the Ten Commandments have sometimes been divided into two parts. Sometimes people have called them the two tables of the law. The first four commandments, the first table, are how to relate to God. So the the vertical axis, how we relate to God. And then the next six commandments, the second table, how we relate to other people. The horizontal axis. So it's covering both of those axes. Now these ten principles are actually themselves an unpacking of two commandments, which Jesus, the Lord Jesus, called the, great, the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like, like unto it, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two, the essence of all the law. So you have two commandments expanded into ten, those two tables. And then the Old Testament actually added lots of detailed kind of examples of how it worked out. And with 601 little laws, and we're not going to look at all of them this morning, okay? 601 little laws that show what keeping these commandments look like in that time and place and culture. So how many laws are there in the Old Testament? The traditional answer is 613, the two greatest, the Ten Commandments, and then, haven't got enough fingers, the 601. And you know, there is more than one kosher restaurant called 613. The first four commandments teach us the answer to this question, how should we relate to the King of Kings? It's so important to ask this, especially in our time, where respect and honor and the sense of awe are almost gone. It's hard for us to understand awe and reverence. We, want, we need to know how to relate to the king, not of England, but the king of everything. So today we're looking at the second commandment. Have a look at your Bible again. Now verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. That's pretty thorough. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image. So I've just got two points today, actually, which might come up in a minute. But the basic point of the second commandment is this. Don't worship the true God falsely. We shouldn't worship the true God falsely. 
That's, that's the point of this sermon. Now, I think this could be the most misunderstood of the Ten Commandments. Don't worship the true God falsely. Because it's not immediately clear what's really being prohibited. It looks a bit like this is just kind of a restatement of, of the first commandment. You know, we heard last week, don't have any other gods before me and don't make any idols. You know, kind of part one, part two. What's the difference? Now, over history, a lot of people have concluded that actually these are really one commandment. The Jewish, the Roman Catholic, and the Lutheran traditions combine the first two commandments into one. So they have, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shouldn't make any images. And then what they do to get ten is they split the last commandment, you shall not covet, into two. So they say, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, that's the ninth commandment, and you shall not covet everything else, is the tenth. Now, there are some people here who stay up late watching uh, the Right Move website, and for you, you know, the, the temptation to covet someone's house is so strong, you may feel it needs its own commandment. But Protestants have concluded that there's actually a better way of looking at this, which is this. The first commandment says, don't follow any other gods, right? The second commandment says, don't worship the true God falsely. Don't worship the true God falsely. And I'm hoping these points are going to come up. First one, uh, let us not worship the true God falsely. And we see how this works out in a very vivid and very painful story that happened while Moses was up the mountain, it was unfolding. And it's found in Exodus chapter 32. If you want to turn with me there, I'll just share a bit from this. And if you've got the church Bible, this purple one, it's page 90, page 990. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. See, Moses had gone up the mountain for 40 days. He's receiving the law from God himself. 40 days. It's quite a long time, isn't it? 40 days he's up there. What's he doing up there? You know? Maybe he's died. <laughs> the people grew impatient. Maybe they were anxious. We feel like we're a bit of a leadership vacuum. So they kind of gang up on Moses' brother, Aaron, and pressure him into making a model of God in the shape of a calf, a form of a golden calf. Now, it's important to see this calf is not introducing an alternative God, plan B. It is, for them, a representation of the Lord. That's what the second commandment prohibits. On uh, page 90, which we just looked at, if you look in the, the footnotes, our translation does say the word gods, these are your gods, but actually it can be translated God, this is your God, uh, because the word that they use for gods is the same word in the plural and the singular, okay, it's like the English word sheep, one sheep, two sheeps, three sheeps, no, they're all sheep, same word, plural and singular, 
Same with this word for God. So you can translate it. This is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 5, Aaron says, let's build a feast. To, we'll have a feast to the, to the Lord. In other words, the golden calf is a model of the Lord rather than an alternative. And that is breaking the second commandment. Can, let us keep those two points up there, guys. The, the, in, the sin is the false worship of the true God. Now, we, these people are not stupid. They know they just made this thing out of gold. They know it's a model. But that's the way that everybody thought about gods in those days. The idol, the statue, the model is a representation of something spiritual, the real God behind the scenes. And a priest comes and chants some, some incantations over this model. And it's like they've just switched on the Wi-Fi. And that idol now is like a functioning channel to God. It's kind of a hotline. It's like a Zoom call. Speak to this calf and I'm getting through to God. Now, so far this sermon might feel a bit like a history class in ancient religion. But let me tell you, this is going to connect directly with you and me. Because human beings have not changed. We will see this. But why did these Israelites make the calf? It seems so... um, Seems so short-sighted. They've just been rescued from Egypt. They've just seen the plagues. They've seen the Lord lead them through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They've seen fire come down on the top of Mount Sinai. They heard a voice speaking that was so awesome, they actually begged, don't let it carry on speak to us. And now they make a calf. Why would they do that? You see, this is what their culture did. This is what their neighbors did, their friends. Not to build a model in the ancient world is to look like a real weirdo. By forbidding the use of idols, God is calling them to something absolutely unique and countercultural, and it makes them look like a nation of nerds. What do you mean you've got no idols? <laughs> Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart describes many reasons why people in the ancient world were attracted to such kinds of worship. I've gone to just mention four of these reasons. Idol worship was greedy, easy, normal, and sexy. Greedy, easy, normal, and sexy. It was greedy. Idolatry was totally materialistic. It was believed that gods could do anything that they wanted except feed themselves. So the one sort of leverage that human beings had was to bring food make offerings of food. And you can still see this in different countries around the world today. Bring a bowl of food and put it at the shrine. So if you feed a god, the god is obligated to pay you back. The worshipper gets something in return. It's a way to get what you want. You might want crops, money, babies, possessions. Feed the god. It was also greedy in terms of excess. Idol worship was characterized often by excessive use of food and drink. Pigging out on meat feasts typified a pagan sacrifice. And I don't mean meat feast pizzas. Feasts of meat. Heavy drinking, drunkenness were considered proper in idol worship. Getting wasted is part of being generous to your God. See how appealing it was. Greedy. Secondly, it's easy. It's very convenient. Idolatry didn't didn't make too many demands on the worshipper. It didn't demand that you had a radically changed life. You provide some food for the gods, but you don't have to keep a divinely revealed covenant. 
You don't have to bring the whole of your life into God's kingdom. So at Mount Sinai, the Israelites take upon themselves the obligation to live as holy people. This is very, it's a big demand. Idolatry was easy compared to that. People built idol shrines all over the place. You had a local one, you don't have to travel too far. The idol is kind of taking the essence of the divinity and making it easy for you locally. It was like speaking to a TV camera. They believe you speak to that model and it's going to transmit your words to spiritual reality. Idolatry then could fit in with your schedule and not make too many demands on you. But by contrast, worshipping the true God required the Israelites to go to one location, the temple, once a year, three times a year, requiring costly, time-intensive travel, and they weren't supposed to go and make little local sanctuaries around the place. So idolatry is greedy and easy, and it's also so normal. It's what everybody did. Everyone without exception worships a bunch of idols. That made it seem so normal. Local farmers, the Canaanite farmers, in contrast to the farmer on our video, they would say that their success was down to magic rituals, boiling a goat kid in its mother's milk. That, somehow the gods liked that. Uh, sowing crops in a special pattern with different kinds of seed mixed together. That, that, that makes it happen. So if you asked a, cane, a local farmer, how do you farm around it? He would reply with a religious explanation, we make offerings to Baal and Asherah. And you could do it locally. It seems to work. There's nobody out there who, who worships an invisible God who made heaven and earth. So it makes the Israelites into the awkward outsiders. Idol worship was greedy, easy, normal, and sexy. It provided its worshippers with pleasure, pleasing, tangible images of divinity. You might have seen some of these in, on the telly or in museums, sometimes with sort of exaggerated sexual features. It appealed to the sensual, the aesthetic. It's hard to appreciate the beauty of the Lord. You, doesn't, you can't see him. And temple prostitution was often practiced. The idea was that if you went to the temple and had sex with a temple prostitute, you could stimulate the gods to help make your crops grow. And you can imagine how many male customers were fairly devout worshippers at such places. You see what idol worship is like? It's greedy, easy, normal, and sexy. And that's just four of the seven dwarfs. So it's false worship of the true God. And the thing is, it's on our terms. That's where it starts to hit home. The attraction of, of the idol is that it makes God less than he really is. It smooths out the awkward edges. Ignore those parts that don't fit in with our culture and our way of thinking or that don't fit our logic. Give him a makeover and a culturally acceptable face. In the first Stepford Wives film, which some of you remember from way back, a group of men in the town of Stepford replaced their wives with robots who were programmed never to argue with them. Every one of these wives is, is a domestic goddess who does whatever the man desires and never argues back. Now, to some men, the idea of a Stepford wife might be appealing. Not to me, by the way. But the reality of it would be appalling. Without someone to challenge you, push back, come after you, change your mind, 
you can't have a real relationship. You can't have a love relationship. And it's like this with the real God. For us to have a relationship with God, he has to be able to challenge us. Only such a God could actually forgive you. We need a personal God who is full of wrath, holy anger, as well as a personal God who's full of mercy and kindness. A Stepford God can't forgive you any more than a mirror can forgive you. But this is what idolatry does. It worships God on our terms. It's DIY religion. It suits us. It starts when you think like, people say things like this. I like to think of God as fill in the gap. You see what they've just done? You've made a God that fits with you. Fits with your culture. It comforts you. But it doesn't make any demands or challenges. And here's why it is so serious. Back to Exodus chapter 20. Back to Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I like to think of God as jealous. (laughs) People don't usually say that. We do need a bit of help here, don't we? Jealousy. Isn't it a bad thing? It depends, doesn't it? It, sometimes it is, but in the case of an exclusive love relationship like marriage, a healthy degree of jealousy at times is a sign that someone loves you passionately. They don't want to share you. If a spouse really doesn't care about exclusive love, they're no longer in love and they're no longer jealous. If they're passionate, they might feel healthy jealousy. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that God would love you with that kind of intensity. He doesn't want to share you. And idolatry is a slap in his face. The second reason idolatry is so serious is generational impact. Let's carry on. You shall not bow down to them, worship them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations. Now, again, we need to understand what this text is saying and what it isn't saying. It doesn't mean that God actually takes out his anger on an innocent generation of people. He actually forbids that. Deuteronomy 24 says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. That's not what God is talking about. He's saying that if generations after people keep on committing the same sins that they learned from their parents, God will indeed punish generation after generation. And we know this principle in life, don't we? Generational sin is hard to break. If you're from a background of alcoholism or some kind of addiction, it will probably be something you will find a struggle yourself. Some of us know that. God isn't taking it out on you. This is just a principle of reality. Sin has a vicious way of perpetuating itself unless it's broken. You know, we're all both victims and agents. But contrasted to that, that the sin of the parents that goes to three or four generations is God's real wish, which is this, to show loyalty, loving kindness to a thousand generations. That is the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible. A thousand. We would say a gazillion. God shows his desire. He wants his people to remain loyal forever so that he might show them all the rich blessings of his love and kindness towards them. Love. 
And hate language refers to loyalty. So what about you and me? I'm pretty sure that the last time you were in the British Museum or uh, something else and you saw an Egyptian idol, you weren't secretly feeling the desire to kneel down and bow before it, were you? You didn't suddenly rush out to the butchers and buy a lamb to sacrifice. What is, what is our version of this ancient sin? Remember again, the essence of idolatry is worshipping the true God falsely and doing it on our terms. You know, we too are drawn to aspects of God that we find attractive and that seem to work. We're comfortable with the idea, I think, of grace and love and compassion and care, all qualities of the true God. None of, not so many of us are that comfortable with his holiness and awe. Modern Christians love to worship God as the forgiving father, and rightly so. But we are tempted to minimize his radical holiness and his demand for complete loyalty. Yahweh revealed himself to Moses as a burning fire, a consuming fire that never went out. It's an image of awesome holiness. Purity, burning away any imperfections. When Moses first encountered him, God revealed himself in flames of fire within a bush. The bush was burning and not consumed. And God called, don't come near. The place you're standing on is holy ground. Take your sandals off your feet. Because they might have impurities on them. This God is so holy, the Bible says, that he is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. A God of absolute truth and integrity. Moral perfection purity. He was awe-inspiring. When he spoke, those who heard his voice begged not to hear it. The earth shook. Is this how we worship our God? Or do we have a calf? Could it be, friends, that some of us emphasize the grace of God at the expense of his holiness? Are we pure in our devotion to him? in the most private parts of our lives? Do we see belonging to his people as the highest privilege? Are we careful to live in his holy presence, asking, Lord, today help me to please you? Do we deal with things like resentment and forgiveness and bad attitudes quickly because we don't want to be like that in his presence? Do we worship this God in all his holy majesty or a kind of tame God? It's a bit from our imagination. How do we approach our public worship together? Are we ready and eager to hear from him or kind of half asleep, casual, passive? Have you come to worship today or to hang out? What would Moses have felt if he'd listened to our prayers? Sometimes modern Christians tell little jokes while they're praying. Is it really appropriate? Who are we talking to? Now, all of this is not for one moment taken away from the grace and the kindness, the gentleness, the meekness of Jesus, the friend of sinners, the gentle savior, the one who wouldn't break a bruised reed. But this vision of God enhances our appreciation for his kindness and grace. When you have feared the lion, the lamb is all the more wonderful. Jesus is both. But let me turn to some others in the room today. Some of you here come to church 
expecting to be beaten up. You're waiting for that moment when the preacher hits the hard application and tells you yet again that you are a bad Christian. Slap on the wrist. And when it comes, you're almost grateful for it because it confirms what you felt all along, that you are a wretched person who loves God and God hates you. Maybe you think that for a sermon to be any good, you ought to get a kicking. Dear friends, I want to close by speaking to you because you too may be worshipping God falsely. How could that be? Because you have understood one aspect of the biblical vision of God, but totally neglected another equally vital aspect. Imagine a dad takes his little daughter up to Hamley's in central London just before Christmas. Hamley's is a magical shop, possibly the best toy shop in the world. It's on Regent Street, and at Christmas it glitters with the most wonderful toys in the world. And imagine that the dad takes his little girl up there on the train and shows her around the shop and shows her all the wonderful toys in Hamley's, and he keeps saying to her, what do you think of that? Oh, it's amazing, Dad. Would you like that one? Yeah, Dad, I'd love that. What about that? Oh, that, that would be amazing. And after taking her around Hamley's, he goes over the road to McDonald's, gives her a milkshake and says, Darling, the reason I showed you this is because I wanted you to know that you will never have any of that. What would you think of such a father? He is mean, mean-spirited, harsh, cruel. What an awful man. And yet that is precisely how some of us view God. He doesn't want to bless and love me. He doesn't even like me. He barely tolerates me. He wants to stifle me, starve me. He wants me to know that there's a whole world of wonderful things out there and you can't have any of them. And the only way you might get any kind of blessing at all is if you prize it out of his mean, grasping hands. But most of the time, he's up there watching you with a beady eye to see where you screw up, which is all the time. Now, are you in that spot today? That's false religion. It doesn't bear any resemblance to the true God of the Bible. And what does that do to the human spirit? It makes us miserable and bleak. In time, it may make us hard and bitter. It'll make us constantly defensive and justifying ourselves. Or it may just push you at some point to think, I am done with this. I'm broken. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. But friends, you would be rejecting a counterfeit. That's not the true God. Because this is what the true God is like. Jesus told a story of a man, a father who had two sons. And one day, the younger son came to the dad and said, Dad, I want my share of all your inheritance, and I want to take, have it now, as if you were dead, and I want to go away and do whatever I like with it. And the dad said, all right. And he gave him all of it. And the son went off and totally blew it. He wasted it all on wild living. He ran out of money, and he ended up with the worst, lowest-paying, zero-hours contract job, a, a filthy job, feeding pigs. And he was so starving, he actually was even thinking about eating the pig's food. Finally, he came to his senses and he thought, this is ridiculous. Even the, like, the workers in my dad's farm, get, you know, at least they can eat. They get better treatment than this. So he, he plucks up his courage and goes back. And he's working up this little speech. I'm going to apologize and say, Dad, I know you don't owe me anything, but I want to come back. Would you at least consider having me on as a, as a, a slave? 
while he's still a very long way off, the dad sees him, and the dad forgets himself. And he run, he doesn't bother getting his coat. He runs, he sprints to find the son, and he gets to him. And as he's approaching, the son sees him, and he's probably scared. And he says, Dad, I don't deserve, I've sinned against you, and I don't deserve it. And before he can finish it, the dad just wraps him in the biggest hug, hug ever. And he's got tears of joy rolling down his face. My son, my son, you're back. And the servants are running up there thinking, what's going on? He says, quick, bring the, bring the ring and put it on his finger. He's back in the family. Bring the, my best jacket, robe, put it on him. Go and get the calf we've been saving for Christmas. We're going to eat that now. We're going to have a party tonight because my son was lost and now he's found. That's what Jesus says God is like. Huh. This is not the dad at Hamley's, is it? And you know, we in our lives have claimed our share on God's resources of life, food, money, relationships, the environment, the body that he's given us. But at the same time, we've kept our distance from God himself. We either do it by avoiding him or neglecting him, or some of us avoid, keep our distance from God by being very good. That way I'll keep him at distance. We might not live wildly, but we do live separately from him. He has no claim on our hearts. And for Jesus, that's really the heart of sin, is wanting his stuff but not wanting relationship. The father saw the son when he was a long way off. He was looking for him. He ran and embraced and kissed him before he heard an apology. No sooner does the son offer the apology, the father lavishes amazing gifts on him and brings him back in and orders a celebration. You know, you may have any kind of image of God in your mind today that you've got from a combination of stuff you've read and seen and heard and maybe an image of your own father. Here's the important thing. Forget what your image is. Jesus is the Christ, the one who speaks with authority from God. Jesus' portrait of God is the most important one. It is true. And according to Jesus, God is a searching, running, embracing, pardoning, partying dad. He loves those who deserve his judgment and he wants to bring them back. And that's why Jesus spent all his time making friends with sinners. Because he wanted to embrace them, them to know God's love, convince them to return. What does it mean to worship God? Not falsely, but truly. Not on our terms, but on his terms. I don't think that God is calling us in the Ten Commandments to be forever beating ourselves up and analyzing our motives and be exhausted by suspicion of ourselves but actually to worship him in spirit and in truth and realize the fullness of how he's portrayed for us. This holy God who is at the same time the, the lover of our soul. And to hold those both things together, that's the only thing that will really change us, you know, and make us want to walk in the light. Let's pray. You shall not make for yourself an image. Lord, we want to repent now of any image of you that we actually had today that either made you somebody who didn't care about sin or somebody who didn't care about loving us. Cleanse our hearts again. Purify our imagination. Renew in us a right spirit. And for those here who, who this morning don't really, have never really come to know you, 
please help them now just to take that step into your kingdom and feel your loving embrace. Amen.